Hello, and welcome to the She Research Podcast. I'm your host, Kate McKay, and today I'm joined by Diego Silva and Angus Dawson, both from Sydney Health Ethics. And we're here today to talk about the ethics of lockdown. So as some listeners may or may not know, Sydney, where the three of us are based, is in a lockdown at the moment on the 12th of August, 2021. And various parts of the country and other countries have been in and out of lockdown. So we thought we would talk about the ethics of it. And so thank you for joining me, Diego and Angus. You're both experts on pandemics and infectious diseases, and I'm very excited to have your views. Um, and I think my first question for you is really just kind of basic. You, you know, basically, what is lockdown? What is it supposed to do? And um, how, how should we understand it to be different from something like being in isolation or being in quarantine? Yeah, so I think that the first thing to note about lockdown is that it's a bit of um, like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Lockdown is in the eye of the, you know, the beholder as well. So I think that uh, what people usually mean is that there's a set of activities that you can usually do that you can no longer do. Um, what exactly is a lockdown? Does it mean you can't leave your house ever versus does it mean you can only leave your house for certain things versus what exactly? I think it's a bit of a mugs game and doesn't really help. So I think what, what matters is what a jurisdiction or a government has said you can or can't do. Um, so to me, the, the, the details count more so than the word lockdown, whether you use the word lockdown or not. Mm -hmm. um, but usually it just, it refers to a suite of restrictions that otherwise wouldn't be there but for the pandemic. Um, in terms of isolation and quarantine, isolation usually refers to individuals who are infected, who are tested and have, are positive for an infection, um, having to stay away from usually in their homes, but sometimes in hotels or in hospitals. Um, but the, you know, the, the individual has the disease. Uh, quarantine is a, a preventative measure, a protective measure where the individual may or may not have it. So you may not have tested or you may have tested, tested negative, but we know that you know false negatives are a thing or you could develop onsets later on. So in that case, if a person remains in isolation or separated, then, then we call that quarantine. Angus, is there anything you wanted to add to that? Just to say, um, very rarely, I, I agree with everything that Diego just said. <laughs> uh, um, I, I guess the only thing that I would, would would sort of draw out is this idea about in a way lockdown is just a shorthand for a range of activities and that's going to differ depending upon the jurisdiction and that's true here as we all are currently in Australia different states are going to have different approaches so it's it's kind of um I think if you mentioned the word lockdown to people two years ago, sort of pre-COVID, they would have been horrified about the idea in Western democratic states. Whereas so many um, countries have now moved to different forms of lockdown. So I, I think thinking a little bit about that, you know, when, when in China, the initial response was to um, focus on using these kinds of methods I think there was, from many politicians, certainly the expression of the idea that this was extremely problematic and it would never be accepted by Western democratic 
nations and that we would never be using it as a, as a measure. But yet here we are. And I think it's an interesting um, set of reasons that I guess we'll get into is, is thinking about what is the relevant evidence here? Do we have evidence? And also think about the, the more ethical questions, you know, what has changed in the, in the mindset in relation to the acceptability or potential legitimacy of a, of a lockdown? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, I, what Angus said kind of just jolted my mind a little bit, but I think it's really interesting how we uh, forget historical precedents that happened here in Australia in different situations. So again, I think that we're much to, to, to Angus's point about the consternation about how we could lock down people in liberal democracy. Well, we're perfectly fine doing that in context of other infectious diseases that occur, but aren't necessarily in the mainstream. So tuberculosis being a very good example where thing, you know, everyday activities are precluded to the individual who has TB. Um, you know, they are locked down um, and we don't act with horror. So again, I, I just, just to reiterate, I think Angus's point, I think the context and what we mean is so important. I mean, TB is an interesting contrasting case because of the isolation focus. So it's because the individual True. is infected that we um, potentially see that as being a form of response. I guess a really important thing, again, we'll probably get into this, but is thinking through how that is actually done and what the consequences are. Because I think, again, a, a, a really strong set of issues that comes through in here and here in Australia, but elsewhere is how the differential uh, impacts of lockdowns and how they can be targeted on particular communities. So um, we start getting controversial here, but certainly it's the case that in Melbourne, there were some problems in the past focusing on particular housing um, accommodation sites. And here in Sydney, focusing on particular um, communities or, or suburbs and how the, the there do seem to be um, unjust implications for how so-called lockdowns are, are managed. Absolutely. And I definitely want to get into that. I think something that you've both raised now that I think it would be good to start with is the question of justification, both in terms of evidence, empirical evidence. So sort of what's our... Um, yeah, what evidence do we have that this is effective or what are we hoping that it'll do? And the ethical justification on top of that. So how do we um, sort of justify that this is the right thing to do, not just one of many potentially effective practical courses of action we can take? So I'm not really sure where to start with that, because they're very different questions, the sort of empirical question and the ethical question. So maybe let's start with the empirical question to the extent that we can sort of know these things. What evidence do we have about lockdown? Is this the best, is this the best course of action that we have? I think we are gathering more and more evidence about this. And it, it is interesting, again, Diego mentioned history. I mean, I, I can't help but, but think about this in the context of history and 
in um, the world's best uh, journal, Public Health Ethics, um, we republished a pamphlet from 1665, okay. which was writ written by somebody actually in lockdown during the plague in London. And the, one of the things that's really striking about, about it, apart from having some fantastic uh, recipes to prevent you becoming infected from plague, um, <laughs> which I wouldn't recommend, <laughs> the, the the focus of the pamphlet is very much focusing on exactly the kinds of issues that we're going to be talking about the matters of justice the impact upon those that are detained uh, the possible justifications and the problems that there might be the fact that it might encourage people that are infected to um, actually move away from a situation because of the the fact the impact of the restrictions themselves so I think what's fascinating is that if you read that um, pamphlet from 1665, you are right into the heart of the current discussions, um, the ones that we're going to have today, but also the ones that you see in the media and society in general. So what is the evidence for um, effectiveness? There, there, there is some related to things like the, the timescale. So the suggestion that if you're going to have a lockdown, you need to have one as early as possible and to um, have perhaps a particularly restrictive lockdown early on so that it can be of shorter duration as possible. So there are interesting issues here. We're, we're straight into thinking about issues to do with trade-offs between the degree of restrictions versus the potential length of those restrictions. So arguably, and personally, I think this is the case in New South Wales, the current lockdown that we're in, we took too long to actually enter into that lockdown. We were not looking at the evidence from other jurisdictions here in Australia, particularly from Victoria, about the success of managing a few cases. And also the restrictions have been um, maybe not as strict as they could be. And so it, it seems odd that you're able to do various types of shopping for luxury goods, for example. Um, so th th there, are, there are issues to do with both the timing and also the degree of restrictions, and they're going to have an impact upon these discussions. And I think what we shouldn't do is sort of set up discussion here as being um, business versus health, because one of the things that the current evidence suggests is that if you are quicker to impose restrictions and they are to the greatest possible degree, then yes, that will have an immediate impact upon business, but chances are you will actually come out of those restrictions more quickly. So we're currently in New South Wales, our lockdown at the moment, the numbers are still going up. I think today we had yet again, the highest number of um, cases. So we've been in lockdown now for six weeks. And what this suggests is that um, we are not actually managing this this properly. I mean, we should be seeing the numbers going down now, 
And I think, again, that raises interesting questions about um, the kind of lockdown that we're in. So rather than having a lockdown versus no lockdown discussion, we can also have a degrees or a variety or a type of lockdown kind of discussion as well. Yeah. Diego, did you want to add to that? First on just the historical point. So I think that I'll have to I'll have to read that pamphlet that's been <laughs> republished. That sounds fascinating. Uh, but I remember last year, um, uh, my partner and I stayed the weekend at Quarantine Station here in Sydney. And in the little museum, they had the pamphlets that were used for the influenza pandemic in 1918 and 1919. And when you read it, it again, just strikes you how absolutely it's still the things that we're doing to this very day. So there's a, there is sort of history repeats itself, not just, you know, from Europe and the Black Plague, but, you know, here in Australia as well. Um, in terms of the justification, you set it up, Kate, as sort of the justification being sort of the ethic, you know, so there's the ethics and then there's the science. Um, to me, and I, I don't think this is controversial, the two happen simultaneously. Mm -hmm. And so I think one of the things that we're not doing is having discussion about what we value explicitly. So we're, we, we tend to, through the media, pretend like this is all on the basis of science and not on the basis of what it is we value and how we value it and, and what does that mean. So that's not to say that the evidence, obviously you wanna act in an evidence-based banner, um, but Angus was talking about, well, what are your objectives when you have that first case, right? Setting forth of an objective is a values question. The amount of risk that you're willing to take on or force, or if you're the government, permit or force a, your population to take on um, is also a values question. So I think that I, th I think that we need to sort of understand that they come together very, very quickly, right at the outset. Um, and moreover, that that again, I think that there is this tendency to sort of hide behind uh, evidence. So yeah. <laughs> In terms of whether we went in, you know, that we didn't go in quickly enough, you know, I think certainly hindsight suggests that's right. I think that in previous outbreaks, when there have been sort of outbreaks from the, ho from the hotels in Sydney into the community, um, there have been calls to have the, for lack of a better description, I'm going to do the thing that I just said we shouldn't do. I mean, you know, we needed hard lockdowns right away, right? So all pretty much all movement stop and stuff. So in those instances, New South Wales, Sydney was able to handle it just fine. Um, so certainly we got it wrong this time. It's just, I mean, the evidence kind of bears that out. But again, I think that prior to hindsight, at the moment that you're making the decision, there's a values question, which I agree with Angus. I think it's a I think it's dumb to sort of think it in terms of the economy versus public health. That's just backwards. But it is a it is a it is a question about um, again values. Yeah, and that kind of makes me think about the differences that we see between different nations and jurisdictions and how they've handled things. So we can compare Australia's overall strategy of. I think, I think the strategy has been um, 
elimination or kind of zero community transmission. Whereas the approach in Britain has been the polar opposite. It's been like, let it run rampage and we'll sort, we'll, we'll finally reach sort of um, herd immunity at some point, one way or another, or something like that. I'm not sure if that's actually there. That's from the outside perspective. That looks like that's what's happening. <laughs> but um, it's, it's what you've highlighted, I think, for me, is that these questions are um, not exactly scientific, or I guess they are scientific, but they're not um, objective. I'm not a person who thinks that there is such a thing as a kind of purely neutral scientific endeavor. So it kind of highlights that the other values that are being um, invoked here are first of all, behind the scenes, they're not actually being spoken about explicitly. And secondly, are very importantly impacting what we think is evidence or what we think that evidence points to. And I think the modeling a few weeks ago, again, for listeners not in Australia, um, the prime minister of Australia set forth the vaccination thresholds necessary in order to go back to quote unquote normal, whatever that actually means. And that was based on modeling done by the Doherty Institute in Melbourne. Um, if, you read the, if you read the document, they start out articulating two aims, right? Two key parameters that their modeling take, including the fact that, you know, it's, it's a policy similar to COVID zero. You know, the, the idea was, you know, what are the sets of different numbers that you get with regards to morbidity and mortality with the different vaccination rates? Um, but again, there, it, was, it was values questions that were setting forth the parameter of the modeling. That's not a that's not a that's not a knock on the modeling. That is what modeling is. Mm -hmm. And yet, how it was reported in in the news was as if, well, this is what the science tells us. I'm holding up my hand as if I'm holding up a, a pamphlet. But you know, this is what the science tells us. Hence, it's immutable. And it's like, no, no, the science is really important. Like the modeling is super important. But there's values before it that set the parameters that help help set the parameters, not exclusively. And then there's values in the interpretation. And I think, again, I'm kind of going on and on, but th that I think is, is current lagging. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. Um, I think on the, the way I think about modeling is that it's a piece of useful evidence about uh, what potentially happens given a certain set of assumptions. And those assumptions are things that we, we need to question. And there's a real danger that just as you can select the empirical evidence according to what your prior view actually is, you can also commission and select your um, modeling. I, I'm not suggesting that's what's happened in this particular case. But what I do want to emphasize is that modeling is, a, is just one thing that goes into the decision-making. And it shouldn't be just like people say evidence tells us that this is what we should do. Modeling won't actually tell you what you should do. Once we're into should questions, of course, then we're into ethics and politics. And that's where the values actually come in. So, yeah, I think Diego is exactly right that the values and presumptions that are behind the, the modeling is one thing. But then there's the kind of the 
the consequences downstream from the modeling itself in terms of that in its on its own is not going to give you the answer of, about what what we should actually do mm -hmm. so can we talk for a second about freedom <laughs> <laughs> i just like the way you segue that's, that's, what, that's what i'm laughing about <laughs> we've got all the modeling we've we've got the you know the case numbers we've got our aims covid zero or you know herd immunity or whatever it might be um immunization but the there have been protests here recently um and there have been protests you know sort of throughout the world as covid has been going on there have kind of been anti-mask protests and anti-lockdown protests and um all these various protests against the restrictions that are presumably put in place based on this kind of evidence um, about what will get us out of a COVID problem sooner. So I wanted to ask you, how do we balance freedom and what's going on with the people who are, is it just that they're misunderstanding or is it that there's a true value conflict here? between um between aims essentially what do you think i mean i i think it's certainly a clash of values and how we prioritize particular values mm -hmm. so when i was thinking in advance about what we would focus on in this discussion i think one potential disagreement between diego and myself i'm interested to to find out whether this is this is true or not is how we might think about the place of freedom or liberty. Um, we can just use those terms interchangeably, I think, for the purposes of uh, this discussion. But there's a very um, well articulated position in human rights and also in some constitutional contexts. So German federal law, for example, articulates um, this. It's, it's not explicitly articulated here in Australia, but it might actually come in um, because there isn't a charter of rights here. It's not explicit in, in, in the law. And what I'm talking about here is the so-called least restrictive alternative. And essentially, this is the, the thought that we should, when we're thinking about policy, always try and do that which allows the maximum amount of freedom or liberty possible. So the people that are protesting might actually think they might accept that. Maybe they've never heard of it, but that's the view that they are essentially articulating. And I think what's interesting is that um, I would actually make out a case for the state government here in New South Wales being broadly speaking supporters of the same kind of idea. And that was used as a justification for um, not locking down earlier. So if we step back from the least restrictive alternative, the, altern the alternative view to it is to stress that there are some other kinds of values apart from liberty that are very often as equally important, and in some cases they can be more important. And the key idea would be rather than thinking about 
liberty as being the default and then seeking to justify any restriction on that, that gets you into situations as we have currently in New South Wales. And that argument can go through both theoretically and in relation to the application to this particular case. I would argue, and again, I'm interested to hear what Diego thinks. My alternative um, approach to this would be to say that there are other kinds of considerations and that a primary duty of government is to actually protect the population. And particularly where there are actions that can be taken that can't be taken by individuals. So there are certain things that I can do to protect my health, but there are lots of things that I require action by others and very often that's something that that power is given to government to perform as a means of collective protection for the whole of the population. And I think infectious disease is a classic example of that. So the Australian policy of essentially locking the borders so that the three of us are here locked in Australia, even though we would um, love to go elsewhere in the world to see our families, you could argue that, that that's an extreme measure, but it is justifiable as a means of protecting the population. Given a certain set of circumstances relating to infectious disease rates outside of the country and inside of the country, as we move towards equalization between the two, then I would argue it becomes unjustifiable to actually restrict our freedom to then um, travel internationally, where that sort of um, distinction ceases to um, actually make any, any difference. So what, what this tells us is that the background rates of infection, what's actually going on in the population itself is also another factor that uh, contributes to thinking about the, the justifiability of various kinds of policies. Yeah, I mean, I think the epidemiology of a, of a location is absolutely critical in, in all. So Angus and I have this weird little thing where we often disagree with the justification but reach similar conclusions. I think there's gonna be differences, obviously the way that Angus and I approach it. So uh, when Angus was saying, you know, liberty is not the only thing that's important, in my mind I was like, yeah, it's, it's liberty and equality, right? Those are the two, those are the two important things. <laughs> Uh, so, so yeah, like for me, the role of government is to um, promote those two ideals um, and to do so in a robust way. And I think that the what I mean by Angus and I sometimes reach similar conclusions through different arguments is that to me, there's a liberal argument for lockdowns, which is lockdowns improve my ability to be free. Right, so uh, James Wilson back in 2014 published in, or ha had an article published in Journal of Medical Ethics, a second to public health ethics, but still a very good journal. <laughs> uh, and the article was called, the article was called The Right to Public Health. And I think that in, in there he was taking sort of a Feinbergian sort of position, if I rem remember correctly, but I might be misremembering. But the idea was, is that as individuals, as people who, who value freedom as a primary value, as a primary concept in political philosophy, 
that we we can think of public health as a right because it is something that allows us to then live our lives as we see fit. So I don't think that we need to. So for me, I don't think it's necessarily the, the balance isn't a balance of values, right? It isn't the clash of values. It's sort of in the execution of that goal, which is how do we understand sort of the balancing of, 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 of liberty? Um, with regards to the protests that occurred in Sydney, actually Melbourne, Brisbane, several weekends ago, with regards to sort of the anti-lockdown protest. One of the things that came out that I think is super important was the makeup of that group. So there were individuals who participated who had uh, anti-Semitic flags flying. Okay, I think we're all in agreement that's shitty, right? <laughs> that's not a, that's, that's bad. Um, you had people who were anti-vaxxers, you were having people, right, who, you know, whatever. But you also apparently, again, if on this I'm I'm taking based on what the media reported, you had people who who were there because their livelihoods were at risk, because they felt like they weren't being supported by government, because maybe they were from Western Australia, uh, uh, Western Australia, Western Sydney, you know, and they they felt like they weren't being represented. So I think that that's also really interesting. And I think it's, it, it, it should give us pause as to what's actually occurring. So I think that, I think that, and all this to say is that I'm not supporting, I'm, I, I think that it was folly to, to do that, to have those protests. But I do think it's interesting to see sort of who the makeup is. And I think that, I mean, we'll get to the, we'll get to the justice argument. Well, I, 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 I'll go back to one point, which is about the freedom stuff and I'll get to the justice part. So one of the things that was an aha moment when I was an undergrad, right, was learning about tyranny of the majority. And, and right, the, the idea that minority populations, if you don't have these checks, you know, can be, can suffer great harms. And I think that's what we're seeing in Western Sydney right now. In Western Sydney, for those who, who, who aren't from here, it's a, a highly immigrant population, uh, where English as a first language is at lower rates than other places. Um, socioeconomically, it's not as wealthy as the eastern part of the city. All the classic demographics that you could probably imagine if you're listening from you know, the UK or, or the US or Canada. So this is a situation where um, the, the restriction of freedom is most acutely felt by those populations who are least able to argue for their, their rights and their freedom. And we see this, going back to the point about history, we see this in tuberculosis, we see this HIV, right? It wasn't until gay men who, you know, gay white men who had power, you know, who were able to, you know, uh, advocate. So the, the pattern is the same as other infectious diseases. And so I think that when we when we think in terms of oh you know liberty ought not to be the only thing that we care about I I agree I think we ought to care about equality as well, and therein lies those justice issues. So to me I guess the 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 I guess one of the take homes for me is that the idea of restrictions of freedom, I care very little about you know the thirty year old white guy who can't go to a frat party. I I'm with you all right, but. 
but we are restricting in very heavy ways the freedoms of those individuals who are most likely or who are less likely to be able to advocate for themselves. The idea of freedom and justice aren't separate. They, they're, they're intertwined in important ways. And, and I usually in favor of the least restrictive measure. <laughs> Just sneak that in at the end. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course you're wrong about that, but um, <laughs> I think just picking up on the justice side of things. So I suspect I, um, that I want to argue for a more substantive notion of justice rather than one that's formally um, linked to purely the idea of equality. And the discussion makes me think back to some of the WHO um, ethics working party um, work that I was involved in right at the start of the COVID um, outbreak. We wrote a very uh, generic uh, general document about ethical issues to do with the response to these kinds of pandemics. And one of the things that we um, we chose to add in there. It was partly based upon work that had been done previously by a group attached to WHO, a working party brought together, I think in 2015-ish. Um, but ultimately it was um, drafted and very much has the ethos of a lawyer who had written it from a human rights perspective. And one of the things that in our revisions um, to the general approach that, that um, we added in was a focus on thinking about what the consequences of things like lockdowns are for the lockdown population. So the impact of a measure will be unequal in terms of the impact upon individuals and governments have a responsibility to think about that in advance, to plan for it, and make sure that, that people are essentially um, not without the necessary provisions for them to sustain a reasonable life. So maybe we don't sort of set the threshold at bankers have to, they can't go to work, but they can carry on with the same kind of salary that they had before. But we do want to have the um, the level of support as being a reasonable level within a particular society. And something that's really important, um, just adding into what Diego was saying about those in Western Sydney, is that many of the people who live in this area do essentially the crappy jobs that most of us don't want to do. And they are truly very often essential jobs. They are on the front line in terms of, of risk and therefore potential exposure to uh, the infectious disease. But we also need them to work in supermarkets and work in the transport system and, and so on. So um, there's a really strong argument for thinking in advance about what kinds of relevant support and compensation are necessary. And I think that's, I'm sure Diego will agree with this, but that thinking in advance about potential disadvantage and how we protect people from the consequences of actions that actually protect us all. So that is then pushing more in a direction of a substantive notion about we are genuinely all in this together. The consequences are different for different individuals. So we can carry on a lot of our working activity 
online from mm -hmm. home, not at great risk. But that's because of the nature of the work that we do. Other people don't have that luxury. And I think it's really important that um, governments actually think very, very carefully in advance what the consequences are going to be of the measures that, that they take. Mm -hmm. I just want to add one thing now. Look, we, we can't get around the fact that a lot of the policies enacted are, are done so from a position of racism or with some kind of, whether you want to call it systematic racism so it sounds a little bit better and makes us sleep a little better, okay, fine, right? But at the beginning of the pandemic, I'll just speak about Australia, but again, whoever is listening to this, you can, you can extrapolate to your country that you're living in right now, unfortunately. But you know, who was it that we put on Christmas Island in March, 2020? right? It was Chinese Australians. Are Australians coming from China? It wasn't By that point, the virus had already spread beyond Wuhan. Like, it wasn't like other people weren't bringing it in. You know, who was, you know, what Australian citizens weren't allowed to enter the country for two weeks on penalty of, of imprisonment? It was Indians, people coming from India, right? So the excuse was, well, there's the Delta variant, right? The Delta variant got in months later, from FedEx guys from the US, I believe, right? Truth of the matter is it doesn't actually matter where it came in, right? They're communicable diseases that are community transmitted. Like trying to actually pin responsibility is besides the point, which, I mean, we could talk about police measures and ABF as well. But like, you know, you, you know Angus mentioned uh, briefly the, the housing towers that were, those were, I mean, under any circumstance, considered extreme lockdown back in, in, in July 20, or end of June 2020 in Melbourne, right? That was a highly racialized community, right? So I think that we, and I, I, I don't think Angus would disagree with this, like, I think one of the things that's frustrating is for those of us who have done infectious disease ethics or have like actually read a few like history books, in March 2020, you knew exactly where we'd be globally and domestically. Like this is predictable. So is the racism, right? So uh, to, to Angus's point about the essential workers, 100%, you know, we can, you know, we can buy things on whatever and it gets delivered. Well, where's the delivery guy usually from, right? Mm -hmm. So wholeheartedly agree, yeah. Mm -hmm. I think something that you're both sort of making me think about is just that the more unequal a society is going into a pandemic, the more unequal it will be when it comes out of that pandemic. I think we're seeing that here. 100%. Yeah, absolutely. You could actually say that these kinds of situations essentially magnify pre-existing inequalities. And we mm. see that all the time. Mm. So, so again, I think... Um, approaching this from the perspective of public health with a focus on thinking about social justice is really um, you know, vitally important. Mm -hmm. One thing that we haven't mentioned so far, which I think is, is interesting, I know given uh, Diego's interests, I'm surprised he hasn't mentioned these magic words. Um, one magic word is risk, and the other magic word is uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So thinking back to the least restrictive alternative again, I think ideas about risk and about uncertainty 
are important when we're thinking about balancing these different considerations. We're thinking about this really tough question about when is the moment to lock down? So if you focus on that one central question, we're not going to be certain that we're going to hit exactly the sweet spot because we don't have fantastic evidence about when that would, might be. There are so many variables to take into account in relation to the, the kind of the politics and the, the society and so on. So it's really, really difficult question. Having said that, a really important consideration to me is which side do we want to err on? Do we want to err on the side of being perhaps locking down early on and therefore restricting freedoms a little bit more? Or do we want to let it go for a few days, see how things go, look at the evidence and then decide to lock down? I would argue that there has been a tendency here in, in New South Wales to go with that second way. And that tells us something about the ranking of different kinds of values, about possibly some of the political dispute that's going on within, within the government itself, perhaps within wider society, about relevant values and how they're, they're ranked. But given the fact that this was always inevitable that we would have outbreaks, whether they're out of hotel quarantine or people coming into the country that are potentially infected, those are the, the risk points. Given the naivety of the Australian population to COVID because of the lockdown at the national borders level, it becomes even more important to think about protecting the, the population. Because essentially, because we're not like the US, because we haven't been like the UK, because we haven't had widespread community transmission, ironically, we're in a worse position in terms of risk once this actually gets into the community. So yeah, so like I was totally in favor of not jumping the gun with this particular lockdown. Empirically speaking, that was the wrong decision. <laughs> um, like, right? Like, you got to own it. So, uh, um, but I, I think that there's a lot of contextual factors. So I think that the powers that be, whoever that is within the government, had faith in the public health infrastructure and in the ability of the contact tracers to do their job. That does not mean it's foolproof, right? As we're as we're discovering, it's it's also contingent on the on the strain. But you know, yeah, I, I'm I'm I would be in the camp that says, look, you you err on the side of trying to uphold people's freedoms to the point that you can't, and you eat these situations, mm. and they're catastrophic, mm. right? So like, I don't want to like it's not a flippant thing, right? Right, like like this shit counts, like depending on when you pull that trigger, it counts, right? Mm -hmm. It counts psychologically how quickly in and out of lockdowns you go, right? There's a mental health cost to mm -hmm. hard lockdowns the, the moment you get one case, mm -hmm. right? So I think that the, I think that the risks, the one thing I'll say about the risk, and, and yeah, you're right. I mean, I haven't talked about risk and uncertainty and I think this colors all of it is that I think in the risk-benefit analysis, 
not, you know, again, I, I don't know what's happening in the decision-making tables. I have a sense about some tables, some places, but, you know, there is a sense in which the risks that are primary risks are always the infectious disease ones or the ones around the actual virus. There are many other risks, psychological, economical, so on and so forth. So I think even on the, even the idea of the balancing of risk, nuance is needed. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think, it's, I think these are the important shades where Angus and I disagree, right? Mm-hmm. Just, but you know, is what it is, I guess. <laughs> well, I think we're gonna have to leave it on that cliffhanger. <laughs> Thank you so much for speaking with me about lockdown. We yeah, pleasure. A lot of great. Yeah, it's a really good discussion, and we got into so many different things. And of course, we haven't reached any conclusions, but that's our job. <laughs> <laughs> thanks again for joining me, Diego and Angus. And thanks everyone for listening to this episode of She Research Podcast. You can find our other episodes on Spotify, Radio Public, Anchor, or wherever else you get your podcasts of quality. SheePod is hosted by me, Catherine McKay, and produced by Madeline Goldberger. Thanks so much for listening. Bye.